WMEX Quincy Boston, streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston. After fighting and coaching his way through a storied 47-year professional hockey career, Mike Milbury's gloves are again off for his next chapter as a radio host, talking about the NHL, the Boston Bruins, and the hockey world at large. Brought to you by Petchus Law. Since 1986, they've had the backs of every hard-working tradesman in New England who finds themselves injured on the work site. You pay nothing unless they win. So get your free consultation today at catcheslaw.com or by calling 508-321-7000. You're listening to Mike Milbury's Gloves Off Hockey here on 1510-WMEX. Okay, so here we are, Ben, 50-plus games into the season, and I'm trying to take a look at the big picture after the break. Um, who can complain, really? The Bruins have the best record in the league. Their goaltender, Olmark, looks like he's going to be in line for the Vezina Trophy if all things stay the same. And we all know that nobody saw this coming, and anybody that says they did is a liar. Um, the goals for total is outstanding, much better than expected. Bergeron looks like he hasn't lost a step. Krejci picked up pretty much where he left off, although sometimes it looks like he has lost a little bit of a step. I worry about him in the postseason. Postenok put himself into the conversation for MVP and and a huge contract and another contribution with a game winner in overtime last night. Jake DeBrusque, although he's still not back in the lineup, looks like he's a bona fide 30-goal scorer. Somebody like Taylor Hall takes a hit and goes to the third line and he takes it like a pro. I mean, it was outstanding the way he's handled this. Marshan continues to make a case for himself as the best left wing in Boston Bruins history and keep on going with the forwards Mike Foligno who was a real disappointment last year has reestablished himself as a grinder a leader and a good asset for this team it's a team second only to Edmonton in goals four and that's a pretty good statement against a team with McDavid and Drysaddle. blue line is fine Lindholm has played like a first defenseman making Don Sweeney look like a genius McAvoy rebounded from off-season surgery. Great. No problem there. Clifton has blossomed. Derek Forbord is a shot-blocking machine. And Matty Grizzlick's having a pretty good year, pretty solid. Brandon Carlo, I could use a little bit more muscle from him, but can't complain too much. It's the best defensive team in the National Hockey League. So everything's rosy, right? Well, it wasn't following the leading up to the break and following the break. Um Going into last night's game, the Bruins had lost four of five, and the last one being to Washington, and that was just a, uh, a mistake. So um, it was really a, a, a game that was physical, good checking, um, all sorts of action, and the Bruins were, you know, just a little bit short. Um, it's disturbing that the power play was not going very well. Uh, Jim Montgomery talked about the breakouts, how they were just uh, not really on top of it in the neutral zone. Therefore, the entries were t- were terrible. And so you got to look at this as a – anyway, so I'm looking at last night's game and thinking, well, what's going to happen here? Started watching the warm-up on this, and the cam- camera focused on Tyler Sagan. Why does nobody like this guy? He's really overpaid now, grossly overpaid, making almost $10 million, but – you know, he should be a good player, but he's relegated to the second 
the second line for Dallas, and he's not going to be a Hall of Famer. I don't think Taylor Hall. Remember Tyler versus Taylor? And I don't think either one's going to be a Hall of Famer, but great talent, unfulfilled on both sides, although you can make a case that Taylor Hall, with an MVP trophy in his in his case, has had a better time of it anyway. So, all right, I got my phones put away now. No more interruptions. Uh, we're going to have a great guest coming up, Andy Brickley, who was uh, one of my – Favorites as a player, an intelligent commentator of the game. He's next. Okay, my guest is uh, Andy Brickley. No introduction necessary. And I, as I talked to him off the air a little bit ago, I was going to call him one of the most intelligent players I've ever coached. But since he couldn't figure out how to do Zoom, I'm changing them. I'm changing my mind. How are you, Andy? <laughs> I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? Good. And uh, so you took advantage of the break to get a – a hip replacement. How's that working yeah, out for you? Yeah, it came out of nowhere. You know, I've been playing, uh, well, the only sport I can play these days is golf, and I've been playing hurt for the last 20 years. And, you know, you just deal with the aches and pains, and you move on, and you try to make some pars. And then uh, I knew I needed a new right knee because I had had my left knee replaced about four and a half years ago, and I started getting some referred pain in my back and my hip, and I just thought it was all related to the knee. As it turns out, it wasn't. So, the pictures revealed I needed a new hip and I needed it yesterday. So the only window I had to, you know, to deal with the threshold of pain was to get it replaced during the, uh, during the all-star break. So those plans of heading South and enjoying some warm weather and maybe playing some more golf went out the window, but uh, happy I did it. The road to recovery is on and uh, it's nice. That's good. Good to hear. But I, I know, the, back to I know the issues. I mean, there, there's always something that's popping up at this stage. After yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> career. So, um, grew up in Melrose. What was the town like when you were growing up in Melrose? Yeah, it was a great sports town. It was uh, it was a blue collar kind of community, uh, close knit, uh, great sports, great education, uh, great families. You know, we lived uh, like you, big family. There was seven of us, so we lived right next to the Melrose Common. Well, you spent most of your days, obviously, uh, organizing whatever sport, you know, the season called for. We live right down the street from the public golf course, Mount Hood. So spent a lot of time playing sports, spending a lot of time with my brothers and my family. Uh, and it was just a great experience. You know, the, the type of the type of upbringing you'd love to have, you know, close knit family, great town, great community and, and great sports. Had some great hockey teams, didn't they, Melrose? They did, and uh, more so prior to my generation. You know, Melrose and Arlington, I think, Mike, were the first two to really have their own hockey rinks back in the day, and uh, that gave them a leg up. And Melrose turned out some great hockey players. You know, I have three older brothers, and those that generation, those decades of hockey prior to my generation were actually better than when, when I was coming through Melrose. And, yeah, you're right, a lot of great hockey players come out of Melrose. And, and I, hope that, I hope that tradition is, uh, is always the case when you talk about Melrose hockey. So you, you come from a, uh, an athletic family. I, I'm doing some of my background work on Andy Brickley. I saw that your grandfather had played for the Philadelphia Athletics for a little bit. Yeah, he played for Connie Mack, you know, had, uh, had an opportunity to play Major League Baseball. And, and I think that was the number one sport uh, in our family with my lineage. Uh, obviously, hockey wasn't a big, a big sport back in the day, so everything was – you know, it was baseball, football, basketball, I guess. But, yeah, a lot of baseball, a lot of history of baseball in our family. Uh, my great-uncle Charlie was a, a legendary football player over at Harvard. I think, you know, when Globe – when the Globe does that, greatest, uh, you know, football players of, of their generations, and I know that's, 
that's open for debate. But uh, he was number one a couple of years when they put those lists together. So he he was something special over at Hybrid as well. So why hockey? How did hockey come about? Well, Berkeley? yeah, I mean, I don't know the difference in our ranges, but uh, I was eight and ten when the Bruins won the Cup in seventy and seventy two, and. You know, those teams, the swagger, the accessibility, the likability, the talent, the togetherness, that team concept, you know, all for one, one for all was so impactful on my life. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be one of those guys. I wanted to play for the Bruins. I wanted to win the Stanley Cup. I wanted to play in the NHL. And I think that's why hockey, you know, <laughs> the standard line growing up was if you didn't play hockey, you weren't an athlete. That's the way we looked at it because, uh, you know, when, when Bobby Rowe and the Big Bad Bruins started rolling, rolling through new england i think i was just like everybody else you know you wanted to be a hockey player and and you wind up being a hockey player but along the way and this is it's a great memory for me is the quebec peewee tournament one of my sons played in it and you played in it too what, what do you remember about that yeah i remember uh we were one and done you know i mean isn't that what you always remember the competition yeah <laughs> we got to play one game we lose two to one on a late power play goal you know in the old quebec Coliseum. it was such a it was such an awesome feeling to be there the carnival was awesome the ice statues and sculptures you know the toboggan slide along the saint lawrence river uh, but but the the players you know i mean the teams were allocated per you know how your team was chosen based on population so whatever pool we were in i still went to the coliseum and watched the pools that had the teams that were picked from much larger populations and there was so much unbelievable talent at 12 year old on that ice in fact gresky was there the year i was there and i went to see him just because of everything i heard about him I mean, it was worth it was worth the trip to the arena to watch that kid play, even at 12 years old. So those are the lasting memories for me, but still a little bit of bitterness because you know we didn't even get to play a second game. Well, uh, you go through high school and you wind up at UNH. How did that come about? Uh, yeah, I was uh, I was a late bloomer as far as my my hockey skills were concerned, and even though the Middlesex League was still a very 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 good league we hadn't really gotten to the catholic conferences domination yet we hadn't got to the prep private domination yet so the middlesex league was still the league in fact burlington was uh, state champions i believe in 78 uh, you know from the middlesex league so i was a late bloomer um you know my parents wanted me my mother in particular wanted me to make sure i got an education you know she didn't know what sports held for a future uh, so my schools were, you know, Williams and Harvard and Trinity. Those are the types of schools I applied to. And uh, the University of New Hampshire was just a backup school. It was my safety school. It was a state university. I knew I would get in there. That wouldn't be a problem. Not that I wasn't a good student. I was a very good student. And I ended up getting waitlisted at Harvard. And I went over for a little recruiting weekend visit. And I sat down with Billy Cleary on Sunday morning and Billy basically told me that, uh, you know, I was a borderline student as far as Harvard was concerned. The only way I was going to get in was through the hockey program. And he frankly said I wasn't good enough to play Division One, and he wished me luck in wherever I went, you know, in my future endeavors. Came home, told my parents. Ouch. That's an ouch. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, that was. Yeah, that stung a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody likes to be told they're not very good. And uh, and I talked to my parents and my mother was fine. With, you know, she, she would like to see me go to Harvard. But, you know, I got into some other good schools and. You know, she, I think she was leaning. She wanted me to go to Middlebury or one of those schools. And I asked my dad, I said, hey, you know, 
UNH is the only Division One school I applied to other than Harvard. I want to go there and see if I can play Division One. And he let my mother make most of the decisions, but he made that one. <laughs> <laughs> he said, go ahead, go to UNH, see what you can do. And that's kind of how I ended up at UNH as a walk-on. It's a non-recruited walk-on. I had to go in there and try to win a job. You know, uh, the good news was, Mike, though, they had a they had a wagon in 79. And I went to school in the fall of 79. In the spring of 79, you know, they were in the final four and they lost probably 10 for, uh, seniors. So that opened up more of an opportunity for a walk on player to get a second look or a third look, you know, during tryouts or during any time they stuck in a lineup. So it ended up working out pretty good. Uh, and Charlie Holt was your coach? Yes, he was. He was. And, and I, was and I loved playing? Charlie. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, you hear a lot of different opinions based on his personality. You know, some thought he was, uh, you know, on the edge of senility. <laughs> and on the other, and I thought he was brilliant, you know, and uh, he thought outside the box. He tried so many different things. Uh, you know, we weren't a dump and chase team. You know, he was ahead of his time about puck possession, even hanging on to the puck and making line changes. I remember when the Russians showed us that, you know. Everybody was amazed when they wouldn't give the puck up. And Charlie would do those things, and he would try different things. You know, he'd try different formations, the way he killed penalties, power plays. Uh, you know, some of the stuff worked, some of it didn't. We were always a good second-half team because the experimentation he did, you know, in the first half of the year ends up paying off in the second half of the year uh, when he finally figured out what he thought worked and what didn't. But I, I love playing for Charlie. Well, he's a Melrose guy. How could I not love playing for, uh, for Charlie? Yeah, no, I mean, I remember playing at Colgate against the UNH teams, and I don't remember touching the puck very much. I mean, it was – they were just they, – they had the puck all the time. They moved it so exquisitely that it had to be when you got it going in the right direction and everything was on, it had to be fun to play for – for somebody who was, he's kind of like Herb Brooks, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if, and if you could figure it out and, 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 and understand exactly the genius and what he was trying to accomplish, you know, some players could grasp it, some couldn't. And, uh, and, and even the guys that had tremendous skill, he would still find a spot within the system for you based on what you could handle, not so much physically, but mentally, because that's the way he believed uh, gave us the best chance to win. So you complete your career at UNH and, you know, I, it's no, no sin to be drafted last. I wasn't drafted at all, but how did, how did that feel? <clears throat> Were you uh, just to get drafted or was it just, I mean, well, did, did, did you know about the NHL draft when, when you were eligible to be drafted? Cause I didn't, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know much about it. I didn't, I didn't pay much attention to it. And, you know, I never thought I'd ever be, getting paid to play hockey. I just didn't give it that much attention. Some guys at Colgate went to Europe and, and played in, in Italy or, or Germany or Switzerland and made some good money. But when I was, when I was coming out of Colgate, I hadn't, I didn't have a dream of playing for the Bruins. I had a dream maybe, but I didn't have any realistic expectation. So yeah, but was, I, was hockey a, a driving force that sent you to Colgate in the first place, or was it just it, you know? It was, you know, I played all I played all sports. I played, uh, in fact, my my junior year, I played soccer and football as well as hockey and baseball. And um, so I was I was a committed athlete. But you know, when I got to Colgate, I had to make a decision between football and hockey. And I just you know, football banging your head against somebody every play is just wasn't <laughs> wasn't my thing. So you know, not that hockey's a piece of cake but we decided to go decided to go in that direction but you you get drafted 
last. So it had to be, yep. you know, somebody must have picked up the phone and called you. Who did that? Yeah, it, that came about 48 hours later. In fact, uh, my memory was that my dad's brother, my uncle, called me because he had, you know, just reading through the local paper. I don't know if it's the Globe or the Herald. You know, and there was a listed list of uh, New England players that were drafted, you know, in the National Hockey League. And there was my name at the bottom of the list. And he called the house to tell me I was drafted. And, <laughs> no, no, and I, not, no, I, I hadn't heard from the Flyers yet. I was drafted by the Flyers. I hadn't heard. Um, and at that time, I think there was there was talk of conscription. You know, there was there was some some strife going on across the world. And there was some talk about, you know, if you were an able young body, you needed to enlist. And I thought I was drafted. What do you mean? What does that mean? You know, am I putting fatigue <laughs> on here? <laughs> I have some memory of that, but then it dawned on me, okay, NHL drafted. And then the flyers reached out and, uh, the, the feller, Walter Tannis was the guy that drafted me. I don't know if you remember Walt, but uh, I he do. Was a, yeah. He was a fixture in new England. Uh, they actually came to UNH to watch Jay Miller mostly. He was the he was the calling card. You know, he went to Northwood Prep. He was a man child. You know, he was six three, two hundred twenty five pounds as a freshman. He had a lot of skill. He could skate. Everybody was coming to watch him, but whatever I was doing caught Walter's eye, and they took a flyer on me, so to speak. They took a chance on me with the last pick of the draft. So that's kind of how it all evolved. And when they did reach out to me, they said, you know, stay in school. You know, you're not ready to turn pro. We're going to monitor you. We'll be in touch with you. And then it was after my junior year, after we lost in the final four and, and I was an All-American, that they, they decided that uh, they thought I was ready to come out. And that's when they put the big push on me to, to, to leave UNH. So you get drafted, you, you leave UNH, and you start, like me, um, a minor league experience. How is that experience for you? Phenomenal. Absolutely Phenomenal. And, and that's not glossing over the fact that, you know, you go to camp and you feel like you have a good camp and you feel like you're NHL ready and you can certainly play with these NHL guys. And that was my experience. I had a really good camp. I was playing with good players. You know, I, I remember when I was at the end of my career, you know, 35, 36, and I'm sitting beside an 18-year-old in the locker room telling them, you know, I, I played on a line with Bobby Clark and Billy Barber. <laughs> you know? Yikes. And, and they're looking at me like I'm 100 years old. And, uh, but that was my experience. I had a great camp, you know, I had some nice numbers. I thought I was NHL ready. And of course, you know, you're one of the last guys sent down. And the message was, uh, you had a great camp, but you have to learn how to be a pro. You know, you played 32 games in college a year, you know, you're going to play over a hundred this year. You have to learn how to play without the puck. You have to learn how to defend. You have to learn how to, how to take hits to make plays. You know, this isn't college hockey and you need to learn that at the American league level, unless you are a major star or a major impact player at 18, the flyers certainly believe you learn the professional game in the American league level. So not only was that the message, but my first head coach in the American hockey league was one Mr. Tom McVie. So the lessons came fast and furious and often. <laughs> There's no, nobody like him. Is there? He's just <laughs> one of a kind. Absolutely. He had a major impact on my development as a player uh, to learn to be a pro. You know, that first year in Maine, we had 10 rookies, you know, so there was uh, there was some real camaraderie and there was some competition for the few jobs that might be available the following year in Philadelphia. You had 10 guys right in your own lineup. So uh, that was a unique experience. And I think Tommy was the right guy for the job at that time. So you're you're sort of 
trying to find your way and you're making some pit stops and pit stops in Pittsburgh and Jersey before you come home. Must have been exciting to get the call that you were going to Boston. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I had a good year in Maine, you know, led team in scoring. We went to the call the Cup Finals. We lost to Rochester. That was Mike Keenan's team. Uh, so I had had an experience in the American League. I learned how to be a professional. I had a good postseason experience. I thought I was a flyer starting next year. And I got I was part of a trade. I went to Pittsburgh. There was three of us that went in that deal for one of the Sutter brothers. Uh, Pittsburgh was pre-Mario. I mean, you talk about an organization with no direction. <laughs> like What an experience to go from the Flyers and the way they operate to the Penguins at that time. It was just dismal. Uh, but I had a good experience there, and and then I became a free agent, signed with Jersey. I went to another bad organization in terms of you know direction. But then in Jersey was a great experience. By the time I left New Jersey to get to your question about coming to Boston, there was the first year we made the playoffs, and that whole experience, you know, winning in Chicago on the final day of the regular season in overtime, Johnny McLean scores, and then that great run in the finals and play the Bruins in the in the semis. You know, we advanced all the way to the semis, Game Seven against the Bruins before the Bruins beat us and went on to play Edmonton. And then, so I felt like we got something going here in New Jersey, and I like being part of this. I'm on the ground floor. I'm still in my mid-20s. This is great, and and I'm valuable to this team, and I'm a good player, you know, within the context of the club. And then I'm exposed to the waiver draft, and I believe Johnny Conniff was the driving force to to convince Harry and uh, and the Bruins to, you know, take a shot at me. I, mean, I think I was only 12500 priced to get and uh, changed my life forever, come to the Bruins, and, uh, and for the better. And even though I felt a little bit sad that I was leaving New Jersey, I was staring at an, an unbelievable opportunity to play for the team I you know, dreamed of playing for. And it, there it was, the reality right in front of me. And Terry O'Reilly was your coach. What was he it like for Terry? Scary. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, I had you for the next two years after Terry uh, stepped down. But, you know, those days, and and we joke about it now, that you know, the circle of friends that I have that played in that generation, you know, there were dictatorships. They really were. Uh, It was changing a little bit. It was a little bit more of a partnership, and the money had something to do with that, and the awareness had something to do with that. But, yeah, uh, you know, most times in a locker room, you have one, two, three guys that really are the uh, are the pulse of the team and and uh, you know the personality of the team. But I, I thought playing for Terry, his his demeanor and his intensity and his want and will to win as a head coach, I mean, he might as well have been in uniform the way he approached it. And uh, I thought he and Johnny Cunniff together were awesome. You know, they were a nice balance. But, yeah, playing for Terry was great. I mean, he inspired you to give everything that you had because I certainly watched him play, and 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 you certainly didn't want to let him down in that particular aspect of the game. Well, by 89-90, you're starting to hit your stride, and you've got, like, 40 points in 43 games, pretty impressive stuff. And then the injury bug hits you. This yeah. stupid thing called myositis ossificansa. <laughs> Hell is that? And Cam Neely had the same thing, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, basically translated. It's muscle turning to bone. So, you know, you break a bone, your body remanufactures bone. You tear a muscle, your body remanufactures muscle. In this case, whatever it was, the blow to the body was so impactful that bone-producing cells come off the bone. They get into that pool of blood, into that hematoma, and your body gets the wrong signal. And it starts to make bone where it should be remanufacturing muscle. So myositis ossificans, usually it, you know, not to be a 
a doctoral show here, but it's like a hardened shell. And then as it hardens, it hardens from the outside in. And you hope it gets so condensed that you just leave it in there. As long as you have decent range of motion, you're not going to have full range of motion in that part of your body. You can leave it in there and still be, you know, almost 100%. Well, that wasn't the case with mine. As it hardened, it wrapped itself right around my femoral artery of my leg. And they were like, this isn't good. Not only is, you know, his career in jeopardy, his life might be in jeopardy because his, his circulation's in jeopardy. So they had to go in and remove mine. So they took out like a fist-sized piece of my adductor. You know, and I was basically going to lose at least a calendar year. Even though you come back and you feel 100% because the pain's all gone and you think you pick up right where you left off, you can't. You know, they took out a serious piece of your body. So it takes about a year to regenerate. And Cam had the same thing a year later. And they went that route of leaving it in there and let it condense and stay in there. And maybe on second thought, it, it might have or should have come out. Well, you finally hung it up in the late 90s and you find a career in broadcasting. How did that come about? Yeah, I was at the end and uh, I was still enjoying playing the game. I still thought I was a pretty good player. The, the old IHL was a fun place to play. You know, I had spent my time on the development side playing in the American League, you know, fighting my way to the, uh, to the National Hockey League. Had a good run. Played for some great teams in Boston. Would have been nice to win, especially in 90, as you know. Um, and so I was playing. I played a year in uh, in Denver. Denver was looking to get the NHL back. So through the powers that be, they wanted to make sure they put a good team in there. We were like a prototype team going back into Denver. You know how the NHL doesn't want to go back to towns where they failed. But Denver was clamoring for NHL hockey, and they were successful in the other major sports. And so they really put an Islander farm team loaded with ex-NHLers in Denver, and we just dominated that league. And, and it was a fun league. It was like playing in the NHL. You flew everywhere. You, you went to great cities. You know, you went to San Francisco. You went to Phoenix. You went to Vegas. You know, that was our division. Uh, and we won a championship. It was a lot of fun. And then the was next Butch year I played. your coach? Butch, was the coach. Yeah, and Kevin Dayoff was the assistant coach, who's now the GM in Winnipeg. And uh, and then the next year, I think there was seven or eight of us that stayed with that organization. And we went, we got relocated because the Avs then became in existence, right? So the Nordiques came in right after us, and they won the cup the first year right behind us. So that whole experiment worked for the NHL. And so we had to move our franchise. We ended up in Salt Lake City. We won another Turner Cup. So I was still playing, having fun. I didn't have to play every game. Butchie knew that, you know, it didn't matter what my statistics were. He just wanted me for the playoffs, and that's all I wanted. So I was coming home in the summer. My family was back in Hingham. Uh, Diane was home, and we had started a family, and the girls were young. And, and uh, I got a call from WBZ Radio out of the blue, and they said, Brick, what are you doing? Are you going back to play hockey again next year? I said, that's the game plan. What's up? They said, well, uh, Barry Peterson's been our color guy on, on Bruins coverage, but, uh, you know, he has a job change that's not going to allow him to travel. We're looking to re, you know, we're looking for a color guy for Bruins broadcasts and we'd like you to come in and audition. And I said, sure, I'll come in, check it out, see what it's all about. I got to retire at some point. So I went in with no, no aspirations. I just went to check it out, see what it's all about. And uh, sat down with Bob Newmeyer. We put a game on the TV. We did a period of Bruins Blackhawks and we just winged it. And that was my interview, if you want to call it that. And when we were done, they offered me the job on the spot. And I asked them, how did I end up on this short list to be invited in here? And they said that uh, they went through tapes of, uh, you know, they were affiliated with what, Channel 4. So they, they went through like interviews post game when I was playing. They were looking for somebody that would, you know, that could talk in front of the camera that was fairly articulate. 
And I think I had a leg up because of my history, Mike, you know, like you, I mean, I grew up here. I know the history of the Bruins. Uh, they feel like that people that if you're one of us or one of them, they feel like they can trust you more that, you know, what you're talking about. And I think that kind of gave me an advantage when it came to, to the start of, uh, of that. So I did a year of radio and then Fred and Derek and everybody else retired. So the TV stuff opened up and then that's when I slid over to television. What's it like working with Jack Edwards? It's not your average <laughs> Jack, is he? <laughs> it is unique. It's unique. Uh, he brings so much passion and love for the game and love for the Bruins. And, uh, I think we're a good balance. I think we're a good team. Um, yeah, we've been, we've been together, Mike, for, I think since the 05 lockout. So it's 17, 18 seasons, maybe. So, uh, yeah, and, and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm sure you watched last night. That was a heck of a game. That was a good call by Jack. And, uh, you know, I think you probably feel the same way I do. When you get two teams that are at the top of the, each conference, I want both teams to play really well and may the best team win. And that's exactly what we got last night. It was, it was fantastic. So what's the story with this Bruins team? They had a little stumble before the break. Uh, Washington beat them coming out of the break. Pretty good game, by the way. I mean, it's not it's kind of sloppy from the Bruins angle, but Washington played hard. I mean, they're trying to figure out whether they're going to be buyers or sellers at the deadline, and and they they played hard, and their goaltender was pretty good. But it was they hung a loss on the Bruins. So last night going into Dallas, I was really curious to see how they responded, and they responded pretty darn well, didn't they? Yeah, I had, I had a similar uh, sentiment uh, as you. I mean. You go back to that five-game roadie before the All-Star break. You know, they start in Montreal. They win that game. They go down. You know, they lose third period to Tampa. They lose that horrendous finish against Florida. You know, Apostanax goes in the final minute. They give that up. They don't even touch the puck in overtime and lose. You know, and then the team that knocked them out of the playoffs last year, Carolina, puts, you know, puts them down again. And now I'm worried. I'm worried about what's happened with this team. First taste of adversity. What's going on with these guys? Were they were they overrated as a group? You know, all these find a way to win games that they had been winning when they didn't have their A game. And, you know, and you give them all the kudos and all, all, all the credit for what they had built because they are a good team. Now, how are they going to respond? And I love the way they responded going into Toronto, especially that team and in that building. Awesome game. You know, the mentality that that compete, that, you know, shot mentality, you know, just the way you want the Bruins, the basics of the game, and then let the skill and the depth and the balance and the talent take over. And then they come out of the break and they they lose a game that was very winnable against Washington. I give the Caps credit, just like you. You know, they needed it more than Boston, but Boston reverted again to the way they had played prior to the Toronto game. So, again, I'm looking for that response game. That first period last night, I mean, they should have been up 4-1. Uh, Ottinger made um, a number of great saves. I love their opening 20 minutes, but then it started to settle into a game in the second period when, when Dallas pushed back. But yeah, I, I got exactly what I was looking for in response from this Bruins group, which it, it strengthens my belief that this is, if not the best team, certainly one of the top two teams in the league this year. And it makes you wonder what they're going to do here over the next couple of weeks. You know, I, I was, I have been, amazed at the emergence of Allmark and goal. I mean, we saw him play last year. He was, <clears throat> he was okay, but he's just another run of the mill goaltender. And this year, not only did he somehow revise his style, but he, he, the timeliness of his goals, his shot stopping has been remarkable. Last night he left a couple through him, which kind of like that was the first time I'd seen him 
let a couple slide through, and I knew you could probably analyze it better than I can, but it gave me a little concern. And then in the third period, or after those two goals, he got right back on the horse, and he was terrific. He made some tremendous saves. I mean, it, how, how has this come about? Yeah, I don't know. You know, he's been asked that, and he mostly refers to his domestic life last year. There was a bit of a a sideshow that distracted him. And, you know, of course, he's first time he's moved, first time, you know, he's signing a new deal, first time there's a different kind of pressure. Uh, it's a different organization. He had a hard time settling in. Uh, his goaltending last year, like you said, at times good, at times questionable. Um, you know, I don't think he played great in the postseason. Uh, so what was his future in Boston? And just like the Bruins team, I think surprised the heck out of everybody the way <laughs> the way they came out of the gates with the injuries that they were dealing with. And even the question surrounding, you know, was Bergeron coming back? Was Krejci coming back? What are they going to have with the tank, you know, at this point in their careers? So a lot of question marks. And then the two players, uh, Hampus Lindholm, played incredible in the absence of Charlie McAvoy. But you're right, it was Linus Olmark. And, and, and I don't know if uh, you know, Bobby Senza gets credit for that, or the player certainly gets credit for it, uh, the calming down of everything that was going on in his life. His life had order, and maybe the work that he did in the offseason and the fact that he had a year under his belt all of those may be variables to put him in a position where, you know, his confidence level is where it was. He got off to a good start. Uh, he's a big kid. He's a really, really athletic kid. Uh, and the save he made last night that I loved was after they survived the five on three late in second, and they were already down two one. you know, the Bruins took a couple little shortcuts there in the final 45 seconds and Robertson gets a chance walking in top of the circle and he tried to go far side to get it with his right pad. I mean, no bigger save than that. So uh, it's been that kind of year for him and his rebound control has been great. Um, uh, he's staying in the net. You know, he, he slid out of his net. He overslid last year a lot. You know, he's out of position. He wasn't square for rebound chances. All that stuff is different this year. I didn't see it coming. Uh, I think kudos to the Bruins that they identified a goalie. They went out and got him, whether it was a popular decision or not. They gave him the contract, and it sure looks like it's going to pay off. Boy, he, he has been special. And that, I mean, and you mentioned Lindstrom. Um, when he first got traded here, I thought, like, what was coming out of his mouth was awfully cocky. You know, he was like, <laughs> he was like, I'm going to make a difference and blah, blah, blah. And like I thought, Whoa, wait a minute. I mean, this guy's been he's been playing on a lousy team and he's had some good seasons, but but has he backed it up or what? Yeah, you know, and, and, and out in Anaheim, he's kind of playing behind what Cam Fowler when it came to the alpha dog on the back end, you know. Fowler's gonna get all the all the opportunity offensively in front of him, first power play and all that stuff. So yeah, Lindholm was just he's such he's a big kid, Mike. I don't know if you stood next to that kid. He's a big boy. He's six four. You know, he's got that lower half of his body that's just really powerful. The kid can skate all day long. Uh, he's not afraid to take chances. There is risk in his game, and sometimes that hurts you, but you live with that because of all the good stuff that he does. He's ultra-confident, and, yeah, it came across as cocky, but kind of liked it, kind of liked it, especially, you know, I'm looking for a guy back there that does have that offensive flavor. I mean, Charlie McAvoy's a really good player and he'll get, he'll get points, but he's not that dynamic offensive, you know, quotient that you want in the mix. And I think Lindholm has a little bit more of that, but I love the way he plays. I love the way he thinks the game, you know, he denies plays in the neutral zone because he's big. He's got a good reach. He's got a good stick. 
but it's that skating ability and, and his athleticism and the belief that, you know, he wants to be on the ice in every big situation. And he understands the team concept and where he fits in as far as, you know, what best suits the Bruins in, in certain situations. But what an addition, you know, I mean, what would you rather have? And this is a philosophical question. Would you rather have a big three on the back end or would you have, you know, four guys that are pretty good? You know, what's the best way to go when you, when you're constructing a team? Cause I believe in the big three. I watched it for years with the Canadians. So, so did I. <laughs> and sadly, <laughs> I had to watch it up close. You know, yeah. when they had, yeah. they had Robinson, Lapointe, Savard, you know, I was actually, I'm going to talk to Don Cherry later today and bring up some old stories, but they had nine Hall of Famers on that team. Yeah. Nine. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. was Dryden backed them up in goal, and they had Shuck, they had Lemaire, they had Cornway, they had Lafleur, they had Gainey. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm missing somebody in that group, but it was yeah, Pete big Mahavich three for was me. On that team. Yeah. yeah, Pete Mahavich big, was on that team. Yep. The, yeah. the big three is the way to go for me. I mean, you can, yeah, you can pile up those minutes in the in the postseason and and you know, using the three guys and filling in with somebody else is it's it's fine. I mean, it, it you might know everybody's going to share the workload kind of philosophy, but when it comes down to wanting to win a game, you want your best players on the ice. And if you can get three quality defensemen, I'll take it any day of the week. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. One of those guys can be on the ice, you know, for the entire sixty. At least one of them's on the ice on every on every shift if you really want to work it that way. Reminds me of the Devils when they were winning. I know it was a different game and it was the dead puck era, but they they had that philosophy. As did Anaheim when they won. So, so as constituted, does this team need something on the blue line? Do they need a Luke Shen whose name keeps popping up? I mean, I hear the name of uh, Jake Chikrin. Guy can't stay healthy. I mean, first of all, it's going to be a huge price, and he can't stay healthy. I, I would scare the hell out of me. But you know, his name has come up, and and the kid in yeah. Gavrogoski is, is that his name? Gavrogoski. <laughs> can't pronounce those. Too many foreign names now, Britt. But uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I think they could use a little more depth. I'm a little, I'm a little worried about once they yeah. get past the top six. Yeah, I'm with you on that too, and. and uh... You know, certainly history tells you that you need at least, you know, seven, eight, nine defensemen if you're going to have a long run in the postseason. Uh, you know, putting the doll as a sense aside, because obviously that's that's the name of the game these days. But if, yeah, if they can add to that back end without subtracting somebody that's important, uh, I'm all for that. Who that player is, I don't know. And I bring up the big three, because if you want to go, and I know there's no cap in the playoffs, but if you can, don't be afraid to add somebody of, tremendous talent back there if you can get it you know uh, I, I like their depth I like the six seven that they have right now but I mean if you get beyond their six right now the next guy up is who Zaboro right and Zaboro's got some talent but he hasn't established himself as an NHL player yet so that in itself should say yeah they need to add you know if they believe in this team if they believe this is a special year if they think this is a, a season of you know let's win now uh, and not worry about, you know, who the centers are going to be when Bergeron and Krejci are gone. I'm more concerned about signing David Postadak before I worry about, you know, who the next centers are. But if you're trying to win right now, somehow you need to add to this team. And, you know, there's different ways to look at it. You know, definitely another defenseman, 100%. You know, whether that's Luke Shen or not, I don't know. He's not high on my list, but, uh, you know, maybe he's a good addition for Boston. But when you think about the forwards, 
what we've seen, Mike, and maybe you, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but with the absence of Jake DeBrusque, you know, Bergeron Marchand together, who's riding with them has not been all that successful in Jake DeBrusque's absence, no matter who they've tried there. And that concerns me a little bit. So when DeBrusque comes back, now everybody's slotted good. You got Taylor Hall in the third line with Charlie Coyle. I love that lineup, you know, with the checkmates together. That, to me, is their best lineup. But if any one of those top seven go down, I need a player that can slide in there and be not only a good player but productive. And I, I don't see that on their roster, you know, once you get beyond those top seven players. Yeah, and, neither do I. And, yeah, and so that's concerning. And the names that have been out there, and you know them as well as I do, but certainly Patrick Kane would be yeah. he'd be a hell of an addition. Um or or Timo Meyer. Uh, yep. uh, those are guys that have been brought about, but you, you're not gonna just pluck those guys for nothing. No, Having exactly. said that, would you in terms of assets, you don't want to rip your lineup apart when you're trying to win right now, but would you consider, and this is a tough question because I like him as a player, would you consider putting Swayman in a deal? <laughs> I never even thought of that. Uh, I don't know what's in the pipeline, really, to be honest with you, Mike, as far as goaltenders with Boston. And I know you can go out and, and, and get a number two goaltender. There's plenty of them, you know, whether it's another Halak kind of player, the way the Bruins have done it for the last decade plus. You can do that if you want to move a Swayman. I kind of like Swayman. I kind of like uh, I like that tandem. Uh, you know, if you want to be good for a long time, I think he's part of the equation. I know there's term left with, with uh, Omar, but I like having Swayman. I, I'd rather if I was deleting a player or moving a player, it wasn't him. And I know you have to give up something good if you're – if you're looking to make that splash and improve your team, I, I would hate to part with Swayman. I really would. I would, too. You know, the, the, the question, you know, and I know this is a long time ago, but I think back to the 11 team, you know, the acquisitions that they made. You know, Chris Kelly was a good acquisition. Thomas Cavalier, not so much, but still, he had his fingerprints on a Stanley Cup. But you think of a kid like Rich Peverly, and I thought Peverly was big for that team. And is that the route that the Bruins go? Somebody that can play in your top nine, He's not a big-time player. He's not a big-money player. But he can play good with good players and be that productive, accountable guy that can step in a lineup when Nathan Horton goes down. You know, I mean, they had Sagan, and he was a kid, and you could put him in, take Thornton out, however you wanted to do it in 2011. But are you looking for that kind of player at the deadline to – you know, support what the Bruins believe is the best team in hockey right now? Well, I mean, it's a tough question. It's a rental versus an acquisition yeah. that will, will, yeah. will stay with you for a while. I mean, if you're trading a guy like Swayman, you have to be thinking about you're getting a player that's going to be with you for a while because he's, he's, he's just a puppy and he looks like he's going to be a darn good goalie. And I'm with we're, you. You'd have to find – a second goalie, but it's just a thought that I had, like you get excited as a player, as a coach, as a manager, when you see your team in this kind of a role and you don't want to miss the opportunity and it right. starts, starts the wheels turning. And um, sometimes it's a dangerous time too. Where is the, where, the Pasenak situation going to end up? What do you, what, what's your crystal ball telling you? I don't know why it hasn't been done. I don't, I don't know what the issue is. Uh, I read something that Postonok was concerned about 
who would his centers be? Mm. But that's a place that he can't go. Like he, right. he wants to be in Boston. He's going to be in Boston, and they're going to do the they're going to do their best to give him good centermen. Um, right. And and actually, what might be helpful here is the the emergence of Zaka, who I didn't really wasn't really fond of early on, but boy, has he come on. Yeah. And he could be a centerman. He could be. He could be. Yeah, he's he's been impressive. You know, he's bigger than you think. He's stronger than you think. He's faster than you think. He's an intelligent hockey player. You know, he, he'll he'll turn the puck over because he thinks there's a play there that he can make, and that's okay. You know, good players do that. But overall, his intelligence and his ability, his skill set, and and you know, he's really entering the sweet spot of his career age wise, and it's a different responsibility in Boston with a different leadership group and a different culture. And I know we hear that all the time, but it's a real thing. And he's really, really comfortable and, and, you know, where he's going with his career. I thought he was the best player on the ice for Boston last night outside of the goaltender. And uh, yeah. And, and yeah, he probably can play center. He's not there yet, obviously, but uh, yeah, what a terrific player. And I, and I hope this, this trend continues as to his development as a, as a great player in this league. I mean, he's one of the few guys that plays better after he signs his contract than before. <laughs> Everybody else is, you know, chomping at the bit to get the contract on on full speed ahead. But tell me about Jim Montgomery. What's your take on him? I, I call him Mr. Rogers, you know. It's a good day in the neighborhood, right? Yeah. Every day. <laughs> I was lucky enough to have a real, uh, you know, face-to-face with him uh, we had some time to kill in Carolina in the hotel and we were talking hockey and philosophy and coaching and what it's like today as opposed to when you were coaching and coaching the Bruins and and the way the the relationships work between coach and players and uh you know his his emphasis to me was the most important aspect you can have is you have to be able to you know create a relationship you know with the player but you have to listen to them. You know, it's not a dictatorship and it's not, you know, here's the way we're going to do it. You know, ultimately it is, but you have to listen to the player and what their concerns are and what they want to do, how they see the game, how they fit in. And uh, he said, that's something that he has learned as he's gone through the years, how important that aspect of the game is, you know, his X's and O's are excellent. His feel for the game, uh, you know, I, you know, I played for you for two years, and, and you could make changes during the course of the game, whether it was personnel or lineup changes or, or even how we changed our forecheck. You know, through the course of the game that would alter the outcome in our favor, and Mike and Jim's got a lot of that in him. You know, a lot of coaches will just kind of stay with what he thinks is going to work throughout the full 60, but Jim's willing to make changes as he goes based on what he sees and got and input from his coaching staff and the players. So, yeah, he, he – he has a way of criticizing, but the public's not going to see it. And that's the way he goes about his business. And uh, he's, he's thankful for the opportunity that he's getting here, given what has happened in his life, but he's done the work. Um, he's paid the price. He's made the changes. He understands the opportunity that he has. Uh, I think he's a terrific guy. I don't know him as well as I hope I know him by the end of the year, the more time I spend with him, but uh, the players have responded, you know, what they have, what, 51 wins, 107 points last year, and you got to come in and try to improve on that. And he has improved on that. And the improvement is, and, and you know, you may have your own thoughts on this, but he's getting more out of guys that they've drafted and tried to develop and haven't. I think there's been growth in those guys' games. 
And you brought up Old Mark, and I don't know if he's had an impact in that area, but the goaltending's been been excellent. Uh, I think he's got some real good ideas on 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 how to construct a third and fourth line and how they should play and, and the risk allotment that is allowed. He's opened up a little bit more of that. And there'll be nights where it's going to be, you know, three on twos, two on ones against in some cases. But overall, he's got great talent level. And I think he's got a really good feel for the room and the players. And his positivity is something that this locker room has welcomed. So it kind of established that the things are going very well and that they might need a, another defenseman, maybe another winger. Yep. Going to be cautious about banging the present roster too much because, yep. you know, it's like playing whack-a-mole as a GM. Sometimes you make a trade and you create a, a void in one spot to fill a void in another one. And you better be careful with that. But there are some, teams that I in the Eastern Conference, which I think is a much better conference now than the Western Conference. I don't know if you agree with that, but I do. You know, the, the roadblocks ahead are number one, Carolina, who's on a, a tear now. Yeah. Um one again last night. Heavy four check team. How do you assess that matchup versus Carolina if they get to that? Yeah, that's a hard that's a hard matchup for Boston. Really hard matchup. Um you know the way that Carolina plays and uh I think they're beatable. I definitely think Carolina's beatable. I, I don't love their goaltending. I don't, even though they're good. Their numbers are pretty good in general. Um, uh, you saw it last year in the playoffs, and nobody could win a, a, an away game. Um, so home ice obviously important. So important that Boston stay out in front of Carolina if, if that matchup is somewhere in the future. I think that's the toughest out for the Bruins when you start talking about the postseason. You know, Toronto's good. Tampa's really good. Uh, whoever comes out of the wildcard situation, they might be playing their best hockey of their season going into the postseason, and that can be a little bit dangerous. Uh, but I want to go back to, you know, you mentioned Carolina, and, and I have a little bit of concern, and you're the perfect guy to ask this. So the way the game's played during the regular season versus the way it's played in the postseason as far as the physicality. You know, there's a lot of flybys. You know, there's a lot of pass-up body contact. You know, that hit by Shreshnikov last year on on Lindholm, you know, when he blew him up behind the net, you know, and Carlo's history of getting hit and head trauma and Matt Grizzlick's size when it comes to trying to defend under, a, you know, a tremendous offensive zone puck possession kind of team like Carolina. You know, those things can concern me because if you're playing regular season hockey and you're not expecting that that big physical hit every time you're near the puck, I worry about that. I worry about habits that form during the regular season that can get you in trouble in the postseason. And again, it leads me back to the defense and do you have enough on the back end, which again, takes me full circle back to the trade deadline to add in that area because maybe it's an unfair concern, but it is a concern of mine. Well, I, I, I would, you know, people are going to get hurt in the postseason. You just know it. And, and, and when I, if I were filling out the lineup sheet and I was putting down Zaboral's name as my sixth defenseman, I wouldn't be happy in a playoff situation. Right. Right. So, and I think Don Sweeney's got to know that. Let me ask you about Jersey, your old team. Are they ready to <laughs> challenge or is this just the first step in the process? I think it's the first step, or maybe it's the second step. You know, maybe last year or or the first half of this year is the first step. Whatever, however you want to describe it, uh, like their team, like the pace they play with. I think their concepts are good. They got some incredible young talent. Uh, I just don't think they're a complete team that you know they can win consistently a seven game series. 
in the postseason yet. You know, I think they're they're trending. They're certainly in the right direction. Interesting to see, you know, what if Patrick Kane ends up there? I mean, they certainly have cap space. They can certainly make things happen around the deadline, I believe. Um, and 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 maybe they get a player that they sorely need that transforms their team into more of what I'm not giving them credit for. But I like what's going on down there. I talked to Kenny Danico quite a bit, and uh, he kind of keeps me up to date on what's happening and as far as the growth of their team. Yeah, good stuff happening down there, but uh, I, I don't see them coming out of the Metro. Does Is Tampa's time up? They keep coming back. The sound of the, <laughs> know. You know, they won a big game last night. I know. It's like uh, everybody keeps saying, well, they've played too much hockey. It's going to catch up to them. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't catch up to them. And, and they feel like they have the best goalie in the world that can, you know, that allows them to stay in games when they're not even playing that well. And their high-end talent is spectacular. And if they're, if they're rolling and they're dictating the pace and the, and the style of play, then they're going to win most games. And they continue to find players – in deals, you know, that round out their roster that make them good. Um, I don't know. I think like losing McDonough hurts them in the postseason on the back end. I'm not sure yeah, that they tough. have that. Yeah, I'm not sure they have that. Like we talked about earlier, they don't have the big three or you know that four man rotation they can really rely on and dominate a game or control a game. So I think their time. I was impressed that they made it three in a row. Uh, I. I thought they were the best team in hockey. Obviously, when they win and they win twice, I thought it was, I thought their game was, you know, starting that drop off. But they still go to the final again. Now I think we're in the, in that regression where they don't get to the final this year. The first round is going to be brutal for them, no matter who. You know, chances are they're going to play Toronto, right? I mean, yeah. I think it's going to be re- it's going to be re- really tough for them to get to the final again this year. Well, the. Two original six teams, Toronto and Rangers, are fascinating for me. I'd love to see yeah. if Toronto can figure it out once and for all, especially against the Bruins. And the Rangers pick up Tarasenko, and they're they got to be reckoned with. Yeah, I thought once the first domino went, you know, with Horvat, and then right behind it was Tarasenko. You know, I mean, Nesson's going to do a trade deadline show on March third. I was wondering if there was going to be any more deals to talk about because I thought once those first dominoes went, we were going to see a bunch of them. But then everything got put on hold again. You know, nothing major has happened. And I'm waiting for that next domino to drop, uh, especially on these teams that are that are bubble teams. You know, well, uh, uh, like like Washington, like Pittsburgh. Do they do they even have any wiggle room to do anything to supplement their, their team? You know? Well, I when you get to Pittsburgh and Washington, I, I know Washington hasn't been a great matchup for Boston, but it, my worries seem to lessen. You know, after Correct. the teams we talked about, these they're yeah. not, you know, the Pittsburgh a little older, Washington the oldest team in the league, lots of guys banged up, but but the team in the West that everybody talks about is Colorado for obvious reasons, but they're they're bare, they're on the bubble, yeah. And I know they've had injuries, but I, I how do you figure this from Colorado? I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that. You know, I just keep waiting for them to. Uh, healthy or not, you know, win eight out of 10 and secure a playoff spot and say, okay, we're in. And then well, how do we get our ducks in a row to make sure that we're ready to compete in the postseason? Um, I, I don't know if they're as good or good enough this year to make up for what's a net for them this year. Um, but, you know, obviously completely healthy. 
based it's anybody's it's anybody's conference in the west you know you saw dallas last night they're the number one team in the conference but are they the number one team in the conference you know is it colorado i mean uh, is it vegas vegas doesn't look like the team to me um so yeah i don't know And, and your point about the east being the stronger conference clearly and that's evidence right there but colorado still uh, come playoff time, if they secure a playoff spot, I wouldn't want to play them. I wouldn't want to play those guys. Well, I mean, the East Conference is going to be tough to get out of, but I think if you get out of it, you're looking at a Stanley Cup champion this time around. What, one last question uh, before I let you go do your rehab on that. Hep, um, his, this is a ridiculous schedule for the Bruins down the stretch. I mean, I, I hate the all-star game as it is. I know it's great to be there once or twice. And, and I was there as a coach once and it was a privilege. And, but they stick in those three or four days off on a weekend when you're usually playing. And then you have the, the, the mandatory little stretch of games off. The Bruins now crammed up for, I, was, I think I had 31 games in 62 nights. Yeah, exactly. How do you handle that if you're Jim Montgomery? Well, he has the luxury, I guess, if we could use that word, to you know to rest people because of the lead that they have and the security that they have in the standings. Uh, I think the big picture definitely has to be priority number one so that they go into the season as healthy as they can. You probably have a better feel for that as far as you know who plays, how much they play, and, and, and what do you believe in as far as resting players. But it has to be a concern. You know, you – as soon as we get through with this game in Nashville, come home for a couple, then, you know, then you're back out west. You know, we got Seattle and Western Canada and the compression of the schedule and the travel and, you know, the, the attrition with injury. And, you know, you're going to see all of that here in the final, you know, whatever it is, weeks of the season, March, April. And I guess that you can rationalize and say, well, everybody deals with it. But our concern is the Bruins and, and, and how do they manage the schedule? How do they divvy up the goaltending? How do they continue to compete? How do they keep uh, bad habits from creeping in based on either personnel in the lineup or, you know, strength of opponent, or is it four games in seven nights? You know, all those things, all those variables above my pay grade, as far as, you know, how you allocate what you're doing with your, with your lineup and your minutes that you, that you allow players to play in order to get the best results. And, yeah, it's going to be a challenge, no question about it. And I think that the Bruins, because of the position and everything that they've done to this point in the season to put them in this position, gives them as a team the best opportunity over all of the, all of the uh, you know, the teams that you're fighting and that you're going to play against in the postseason. I, that's the positive spin I'll put on it. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a good time for <clears throat> Jim Montgomery to listen to his players when they talk about being fatigued or whatever because (laughs) he's going to have to manage it there's no easy way around it i think he's going to have to spread it out and that means probably take a couple on the chin but i think that sets the best way to set it up for the postseason but rick thank you very much for your time i appreciate it uh get back to the the gym and work on that hip enjoy your trip to nashville (laughs) and hopefully we'll be uh we'll be watching a parade and and in june Mike, always a pleasure to talk to you, especially when it comes to hockey. And uh, anytime, anytime. And, and enjoy the games, enjoy the postseason. And uh, let's hope the Bruins are in for a nice long run into June. All right, my friend. Take care. Travel well. See you, Mike. <laughs>